0: God is bringing Noah to mind. When God remembers, he is thinking of his people. God never abandons or forsakes his children any more than a loving and compassionate father wakes up and forgets that he has kids tomorrow. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit ThisIsShoreline.com. A man once came to D.L. Moody, and he said that he was worried because he didn't feel saved. And Moody asked the man, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man thought for a moment, and he said, well, yeah, certainly. And then Moody said, so what made Noah safe? Was it the ark, or was it his feelings? And the man got the point. This morning, you may not feel saved, but it isn't about your feelings. Feelings don't save us. Christ alone saves us. And if you've repented of your sins and you've trusted Christ, you and I can rest assured even in the flood of coming judgment, that God will always be faithful to his promises uh, to us. And those whom God saves, God keeps. The scripture overwhelmingly teaches that no one can snatch us out of his hand, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Even that one thing, as we taught through Romans 8, that one thing you were thinking, well, what about that? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus himself said in John six thirty seven, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Just two verses later on the screen, Jesus said this in John 6, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's not sheep believers. That is you and me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the bookends? The one who looks upon Christ and is saved, and I will raise him up on the last day. Some call this time period between the two the perseverance of the saints, but I think that puts a little bit too much emphasis on the saint to persevere and hold fast. I prefer calling it the preservation of the saints, And that takes the emphasis off of me persevering and it puts the emphasis rightly on God who preserves his people. Uh, Louis Burkhoff defines preservation this way. He says, it's that continuous operation of the spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart, and that's happened for us who have trusted Christ, it began in the heart by the spirit. He says, it's continued and it's brought to completion. The very first verse we ever taught here at Shoreline on Sunday morning was Philippians 1.6. And that's the verse where Paul says that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We believe that God is either God, meaning he's fully capable of doing what he said he would do, that he will raise up those who trust in him on the last day and lose none of them, or God's a liar. And his arm is slack or his arm is short and he lacks the power to keep his promises. Now, that's incredibly comforting for our salvation. Amen. But we can have the same mindset in lesser things like trials and difficulties. And often in these areas, God's people wrestle with wondering, is God capable? Is God able? Has God forgotten us? We ask, like we opened this morning in Psalm 13, the same question. How long, O Lord? Even though Yahweh has never been unfaithful to a single promise, he has made. But in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering and our pain, we can be tempted, can't we, to believe wrongly. Maybe God's too busy. Maybe God's uninterested. He's surely preoccupied. Maybe he's displeased with me to act on Behalf. And what we're going to see in our text this morning in Genesis 8 is the first phrase in the very first verse. It says, God remembered Noah. And what we're going to see this morning is that God never forgets his people. He is always faithful in his steadfast love to act on our behalf. Not because we're this amazing catch and God doesn't want to blow it. Surely that's not the case, is it? No. God remembers and is faithful to us not just for our sake but for the sake of his name, for the sake of his covenant and to the praise of his glory. So in our text this morning, we're going to study this large section, 19 verses we just read. And as we do, we're going to see what appears at first to be a lot of technical information about the date and time and what exactly Noah did at the conclusion of the flood. And what happens is we can get a little lost in the details about when the water dries up, what sorts of birds and why does he send them out from the ark? And then the science of how do you repopulate the earth from this region of Mesopotamia if there's only two of every family of animals in the taxonomic ranks. We can get into all the weeds of the details there. In fact, even our outline gets into that. The outline this morning is verses one through five, we'll see the waters subside Verses six through 12. We'll see the birds are sent and versus 13 through 19, the animals swarm. Uh, that's pretty straightforward. That's no nonsense. That's technical but it's not my desire to just fill our heads with more uh, technical information. This morning, as much as I appreciate the science behind the ark and the flood and all the data that's available for our purposes together this morning, what I want to not miss is the truth that God did not abandon Noah, the righteous man. I want us to observe that Noah trusted God even though he had to endure this storm, if you would, for many days, but that didn't mean Noah sat passively by or idly by on the contrary we're going to see how Noah continued to obey God's commands even after the floodwaters had abated and in all of this we will be reminded once again as we come together as a church that God is faithful not only to save us but also to keep us you and I may feel from time to time that God may have abandoned us and maybe that's where you're at this morning But we're reminded again today of his faithful love that far exceeds our fickle feelings. So let's begin with this first section. The waters subside. I really wanna focus on this first verse. It says, but God remembered Noah. Now please underline that word, remember. Don't misunderstand this. It's not that God was so preoccupied in heaven that one day he suddenly says, hmm, what am I forgetting today? Surely there was someone I had my eye on who, oh, Noah. I forgot about Noah. Uh, Let me remember Noah. As if the the brownies were left in the oven a bit too long and you rush to open them and pull them out. I use that illustration on purpose, by the way, because uh, often in our household, my wife or daughter are baking or cooking and I'll hear, oh no, and I'll see them darting across the house, faster than I've ever seen them before, actually. And um, one of them feverishly runs. They pull open the oven and black smoke just begins to gush out of the oven. They forgot that they had left whatever they were cooking or baking uh, on broil. And so now we've got charcoal for dinner. Uh, that is not what's happening here. God is not forgetting, oh, I need to remember that I left Noah in the oven too long. Um, I like what Derek Kidner says in his commentary. He says, when the Old Testament says that God remembered, it combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. So God remembered Noah doesn't refer to bringing something to mind that was forgotten. It means God has taken action on what he's already promised. Sometimes Hallmark birthday cards will say something to the effect of remembering you on your special day. That's sort of the idea here. The the Hebrew word for remember is zakar, and it means to be kept in remembrance, to be thought of, or that God turns his attention toward. 73 times in the Old Testament, we see that God remembers, where he turns his attention to his people, where he works on their behalf. And this is the first mention of it right here in Genesis 8. But centuries later, in Genesis 19, when God is on the verge of bringing judgment upon the wicked, the violent, the sexually immoral cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we learn just prior to this, Abraham was pleading with God in intercession on behalf of his nephew Lot. And we read there in Genesis 19 God remembered Abraham. He spared Lot on Abraham's behalf. In other words, God acted in light of his character, his nature and on behalf of his people and their prayers. In Genesis chapter 30, when Rachel was seeking to bear children, but she was barren, remember that competition we'll get to in Genesis eventually, between these wives, we read again there that God remembered Rachel. He acted on her behalf, and then she conceived. Way later in Exodus 2, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and before God delivers them by the hand of Moses, we read God then remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He raised up a deliverer to set them free. In 1 Samuel 1.19, the barren Hannah, literally crying out spiritually and with tears, she's asking the Lord to give her a son, and she was answered after the Lord remembered Hannah. We see Samson, the judge. We see David, the man after God's own heart. We see Hezekiah, the king, men who prayed that God would remember them. And many, many, many centuries after this, Mary the Virgin, as we just sang that song, He Who is Mighty, as she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she conceives the Messiah, she turns to God in worship and says these words in Luke 1, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. But finally, in Luke 23, we read there that as Jesus was being crucified, one of the thieves on the cross next to Christ said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. God remembered Noah. He remembers his people. Do you see what's happening here? God is bringing Noah to mind. When God remembers, he is thinking of his people. God never abandons or forsakes his children any more than a loving and compassionate father wakes up and forgets that he has kids tomorrow. See, here in Genesis 8, God is again acting on Noah's behalf. But like we said a moment ago, it was not just because Noah was this stand up guy. We'll learn more about Noah's character and his failings, his weakness in Genesis 9. But God remembers him ultimately on behalf of his own glory his own covenant, his own name. It doesn't say here in verse one, but God remembered Noah's righteousness. It doesn't say God remembered Noah's blamelessness. It doesn't say God remembered Noah's walk with him. It just says Noah. God remembered Noah, the man. Spurgeon said this, Noah had been shut up in the ark for many a day. And at the right time, God thought of him, practically thought of him and came to visit him. And then he says this for us Dear heart, you have been shut out from the world now for many days, but God has not forgotten you. God remembered Noah, and he remembers you. What a comfort for those of us who, maybe particularly right now, are enduring a time of hardship, who might be tempted to waver or wonder Has God forgotten? No, beloved, he remembers you, and he will be faithful to his promise, and he'll be faithful to his people. Now, let's move on to the second half of verse one. We'll never finish today if we don't. If you look at the second half of verse one, it says, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, observe with me. It was not the sun which dried up the floodwaters like the epic of Gilgamesh uh, says or supposes. It was a wind that caused them to recede. Not going to get into the science of that, but we do come to verse two, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens. This is the source of the water. Both of those were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. So whatever was in that subterranean chasm, source of water stopped uh, bursting and ostensibly filled back in uh, with the Floodwaters. At the end of it says, at the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. I want you to to uh, underscore that idea. It wasn't the the peak of Mount Ararat, as we may have learned in Sunday school, and of course we talked last week about the silliness last few weeks, the silliness of some of the nursery uh, pictures that. Erroneously depict the ark as sitting on the very peak of Ararat. It just says in the mountains of Ararat, the mountainous region, and it says the waters, verse five, continued to abate until the tenth month. On the first day of the month, the tops of the other mountains were seen. Now, this mountain range, Ararat, is thought to be uh, Uratu, which is a mountainous land north of Mesopotamia. It's in modern day Armenia or Turkey. And if you remember from chapter seven, the tops of the mountains were covered by at least a height of 25 feet. So this would have taken a very long time for the waters to recede. Some of us think when we first read the story, it was just 40 days. Like you just need to wait out the storm for 40 days. That's not a long time. But that's how long it rained. It rained for 40 days, but it flooded for another 150 days. And even though the ark now rests in this mountainous region, it's still going to be a very long time before Noah and his family leave the ark. I know the timeline is hard to process as we read these disjointed chapters in our exposition, but let me just put Noah's journal on the screen for you so you can get a timeline. You can take a picture of this. We'll have it on our website as well so that you can go back and look at this a little closer. But if you remember, we're going to use Noah's year. He was... It was a 600th year. It was the second month of his life in the 600th year in the 10th day. So we're going to just go with that. It's not literally February 10th, but we're going to go uh, with that. So on that day, the flood is announced. Another week goes by. Noah enters the ark and the rain begins. We have the 40 days until the rain stops. And then we have another 150 days before it rests on these mountains. Uh, and then we have a long period of time before the tops of the mountains are even visible. We wait another, uh, what is it, 40 days, and then the raven is sent out, the dove is sent out and returns. Another week goes by, another dove comes out and is returning with a leaf, and then another week, it doesn't return. And then if you look, there's another significant amount of time before the water recedes. We go into another year now, where Noah sees dry land, and then it's not until the 27th day of the second month of his 601st year that he exits the ark. So look at that first and last one. Noah was in the ark for over a year. And so this would have required great patience and great faith on Noah's part. Please don't be fooled for a moment that he's just simply sitting around, twiddling his thumbs, scrolling through Twitter, trying to keep the baby T-Rex happy, Uh, faith and obedience here in Noah's life are a great example for us. And they don't mean passivity. When we trust the Lord, when we're waiting on the Lord, that doesn't mean we sit around idly by. And I want to look at the second section with that in mind. So if you now move to verses 6 through 12, the first few verses tell us uh, what Noah does with the various birds. So if you look at verse 6, it says, at the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. Now, generally, ravens are scavengers, so there is no reason for this raven to fly right back. This is a little bit graphic, but it would have had no problem floating, or flying along the floating, decaying carcasses or debris that were floating around and littering the surface of the waters. The raven would have had no problem with that. Doves, however... As he sends the dove out, doves are classified biblically as clean animals. And that's because doves will not alight. They will not land on a dead animal. They'll not land on a place that's not clean or that's not dry. And so as he sends this dove out, Noah is hoping this dove hopefully doesn't return either. And then I can leave the ark. This must be the time. He's testing the waters. I'm not sure when it's time to go, but let me use some wisdom here, sending these various birds out. But this bird, this dove, does come back, so he waits a week. Look at verse 10. He waited another seven days. He again sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. But notice now it has a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew the waters had begun to subside from the earth, and then it says he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So what is Noah doing here? My argument is that he is methodically seeking answers as he's waiting for God's command. Notice with me that there's nowhere in these verses where Noah runs to the door of the ark at the very first sign of dry land. He doesn't start pushing against the door that God had sealed in. He doesn't invite Shem, Ham, and Japheth and maybe bring your wives for a quick workout. Let's nudge this door out. Let's build a ladder. Let's uh, mosey on down to the swampy ground and let's get to work. I've got cabin fever. I got to get off this thing. These animals are driving me crazy. And so are my kids. Uh, no. What, is, what does he do? He uses the resources at his disposal to appropriate wise, determined decisions. And yet, he doesn't make a move until God commands him. This has been a mark of Noah's character since we've been introduced to him. He's one who's righteous who's blameless, who walks with God. But the mark of Noah is that he obeys even the most obscure commands that God gives him. Noah worshiped the same God who called him into the ark and he would wait patiently and obediently upon the same God to call him out of the ark. Noah uses wisdom here as he's trying to discern God's timing. But yet in his waiting, Noah is not presumptuous. He's not hasty but neither is he slothful. Do you see the dance that this is, the the fine line that we have to balance as we look at Noah's example for our own lives? Sometimes you and I can be absolutely crippled as we think about pursuing God's will or doing what we believe God may be calling us in the immediate future to do. And because we're not totally sure where God's leading or directing, Or we're just overwhelmed thinking about the million different possible options, what do we typically do? We typically just shut down and do nothing. But Psalm 130 verse 5 gives us encouragement. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. You see, as I'm waiting, I'm placing my hope in God's word, in his promise. Now that doesn't mean God addresses every little single scenario in our lives, though wouldn't that make it a lot easier if he did? If God just gave us clear direction from the scripture in the specific things we're supposed to do tomorrow, like, Lord, am I supposed to work at this particular place of employment? And even though there's plenty of wisdom to guide us where not to work, wouldn't it be so much easier if Proverbs 32 just said, a wise son works his father's business and applies there by August 1st in the sales division? Uh, That would be awesome. No, God doesn't do that in his word, but we hope in his word That doesn't mean we always have a discernible path, but that's where we have the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Psalm 27, 14 gives us more encouragement for waiting. He says there, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. That's how Psalm 27 ends. That's one of my favorite Psalms. And it's written in the context of being surrounded. The psalmist is surrounded by adversity, by opposition, by trouble. And yet with all of that surrounding him, he has singleness of mind and a desire for the presence and glory of God, no matter what is threatening him. And so when he says, be strong, let your heart take courage, there's an element of courage. In other words, not becoming discouraged. We have to take courage in our waiting, but we have to be strong as we face the unknown. And just in case someone was was singing this song that David wrote, and just ran off to action, he ends it again with, wait on the Lord, wait for the Lord. So God had called Noah into the ark, but in scripture, we don't see any next step directions from God to lead him out of the ark. Nowhere do we read, hey Noah, it's going to be about a year plus in the ark, but here's the exact day you'll be relieved of your cabin fever. Noah has to simply trust and obey God by following him one step at a time. Now that the water's drying up, Noah is preparing for action. He's taking wise, determined steps. I just want to encourage you, if that's where you're at today, let these words from Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, encourage you. Here's what he says. Die to self, live for Christ, and then do what you want. And go where you want for God's glory. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future and for God's sake start making some decisions in your life. I love this. Don't wait for the liver shiver. You know, that that goosebump. He says, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. I'll add to that. I love that. But I'll add to that. What's God's will for my life is the wrong question. The right question is, what is God's will? Whatever God's will is, go and do likewise. So Noah actively utilizes the resources at his disposal, in this case birds, to see if he can discern when it's time to exit the ark. But even in that wisdom, he doesn't presume or step out of the ark until God commands him. And that comes in our third section. Look with me at the animals swarming. We read in verse 13, in the 600th and first year, In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And so then it says in verse 14, in the second month, this is many days later, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. This is not a contradiction. He's looking down from the top of the ark and it seems that it's drying up, but it's not until this day that the earth has actually dried up. It's taken uh, longer than he's expecting. But then we come to verse 15. God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. If that were me, I'd say, thank you, Lord, for speaking. Let's go. Let's get off this thing. But remember, all the animals are are in their small little uh, habitations. They're small little, not cages necessarily, but their are places of dwelling. And so he reminds them, verse 17, don't just leave, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Verse 18, so Noah went out with his family. In verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now again, if you missed the sermon where we talked about the animals, these kinds of animals would most likely have been in that taxonomic rank, not of species, not of genus, but most likely family. So around 18 to 25,000 of various families. Um, and so the two pairs of the feline kind would have eventually, that would have been enough, that would eventually become the lion, the snow leopard, your domesticated tomcat. Uh, there would have been enough of the DNA within those kinds. But the burning question I know on everyone's mind right now this morning, the burning question you're wondering is, how did the kangaroos get to Australia? And the answer is very simply, they hopped there. It's very, very clear. Some creation scientists argue that the last little ice age may have taken place directly either before or after the flood as atmospheric conditions resulting from this cataclysmic global flood of rainwaters and thermal venting would have superheated and then supercooled the atmosphere. And so they argue that there was lots of ice uh, and animals were easily able to spread out from the centralized Ararat region and over the land or ice bridges they pop, uh, repopulated the earth. It's certainly possible. Uh, some of us think too strictly that the animals have to be transported and dropped off Uh, FedEx style, Uh, but I just want to scientifically make the case that that isn't always needed. Uh, So we were able to observe this in the 19th century. Uh, There was a huge eruption, one of the biggest eruptions that we have in recorded history of a volcano in the South Pacific, Krakatoa, in 1883. And there was also a volcano on Surtsey Island near the coast of Iceland in 1963. So both of those within the span of recordable um, uh, history. And within only two decades of both of those island volcanoes erupting, within just two decades, those islands were repopulated by all sorts of brand new flora and fauna. No one had driven uh, a plane and dropped off these new species. They had simply arrived there uh, and migrated there. And some might argue, well, you know, this this study in Genesis has been great, but the Bible's not a science book. And so, you know, I I just want to tell you, Pastor, the, the Bible's not a science book. And I would agree. Thankfully, it's not because science books change every single year and God's word is eternal. So I'm thankful for that. But do you see the scene here? As Noah is disembarking from this vessel of salvation, kept by God through the storm and the judgment, The first thing that's brought back to him from this new earth, so to speak, is an olive leaf. This olive leaf in the mouth of the dove has been a sign used visibly, uh, illustrated as a picture of peace. But it's actually a sign of new birth. It's a sign of resurrection. It's a sign of new life. And now with the rest of creation, Noah and his family are called to be fruitful and to multiply. Again, Derek Kidner is very helpful here. He says, As almost a second Adam, he, Noah, steps into a virgin world washed clean by judgment, and the spectacular deliverance in the ark is seen as a mere preliminary to salvation proper, our salvation in Christ, which is a new creation. The New Testament sees the flood and the rite of baptism, which we just celebrated Sunday, as twin expressions of this reality. That is, of the provision of a way through death into life. Noah's flood is a picture of our baptism, a true and greater baptism, where you and I have been joined with Christ in this new creation. We are now identified as those who have died and who have risen with Christ. And in a way, in a very small symbolic way, Noah and his family, they died, if you would, They came through death and entered new life. Next week, we're going to see God's covenant with Noah, at least the first half, the first part, as we continue with the rest of chapter 8, and we also look at the beginning of chapter 9. Now, this morning, as we prepare our hearts for communion, in just a few moments as we sing, our ushers are going to come forward, and we're going to distribute the elements. And I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, this is something that we partake together. If you're not a Christian... As we say often, let these these trays just pass by you. This is not a ritual that we invite unbelievers to just celebrate in or participate in any more than the rainbow existed as a sign for those who didn't enter the ark. The rainbow, as we'll see next week and the following, was a sign for those who had received the covenant. This covenant was established for those who were saved through the ark. And so as we partake of communion, this is for believers only, those who have trusted in Christ. And this morning, those of us who are worthy recipients, who have repented and trusted Christ, it is we who celebrate the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf, of those who have been saved from the wrath of God. And as we approach the Lord's table this morning, I want to just continue to spend time in that reality, that truth, that we would consider with awe the fact that God never forgets his people. However, there is one thing that he chooses to forget in the new covenant. And Jeremiah 31 clues us in. The writer of Hebrews picks it up in his 10th chapter. He says, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God remembers his people. What is the thing in the new covenant he doesn't remember? The scripture says in Psalm 25, he remembers not the sins of our youth. It says in the scripture, as far as the East is from the West, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And that includes his own memory. Because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, God no longer treats us the way our sins qualify us to be treated. You see, in his steadfast love, he forgives us. And the, and the Bible also says he hides our sins behind his back. One of the greatest promises that's reiterated over and over is that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we need not fear, beloved, that we will lose our salvation. For those whom God saves, God keeps. It's not our ability to save ourselves to the very end, but faith that those he saves are his delight. And as we sing often, he will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. What is the hope of our salvation and our preservation? It's not ourselves. You didn't come to Christ because, well, I said the sinner's prayer and I recognized I really needed to live a better life. And so I decided to choose Jesus. No, you came to Christ because God in his sovereign mercy plucked you out from being being a firebrand. He plucked you out of the muck and the mire and he set your feet upon a rock. In the same way, we're saved, we're preserved, not because, you know, I held on to the Lord till the very end. No, we trust that Christ is the one who's our hope in life. He's our hope in death. As we'll sing in just a few moments, what holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? What will keep us to the end? It's not us. It's the love of Christ in which we stand. So as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, may we wait upon him, thankful for his grace, in awe of his justice, yearning for his glory, knowing that the same God who kept Noah's family is the same God who keeps his people and preserves us until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, it's clear from this text that nothing is impossible for you. We see your hand of grace and mercy as you remembered Noah knowing that you do all things well, that nothing is beyond your might, your power. The same God who created the heavens and the earth with a word is the very God who sent your dear son to condescend and put on human flesh. Lord, you came down as one of us, truly man, and yet at the same time, truly God laying down your life to be the all-sufficient substitute. And we thank you that your work, Jesus, is both vicarious as well as victorious. It's vicarious in that you took the place of judgment that we deserved. You bore the wrath. You died in our place. You suffered the just judgment that we were supposed to pay, and yet in our sin, we never could fully pay it. Vicarious yet victorious in that In your resurrection from the dead on that third day, you forever defeated that final foe. And so for that, with trembling lips, with reverent hearts, we thank you, our Lord. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the strength to walk by faith and to be of good courage when we are tempted to lose heart, when you call us to wait and to put our hope in your word when our hearts despair, remind us of the Father's love that is undying, and restore to us the joy of our salvation that can never be lost or forgotten. As we come to your table this morning, trying in God, we remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, and we come acknowledging our sin and our unworthiness before you, a holy and awesome God. So we pray that you would draw our hearts near through the power of that humble cross, you would join us with jesus in this new covenant of grace knowing that in due time the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord even as waters cover the sea until that day we wait and we work and we worship we pray this in christ's name and for his matchless glory listening to our podcast shoreline church meets every sunday at 9 a.m and 10 30 a.m at the port on lena row you can get more content and more information by visiting this is if you have any questions or any prayer needs please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. god bless you